This episode of Energy Sense is brought to you by IHS Markets Financial and Capital Markets Energy Advisory Group. Our team of experts provides the investment community with actionable insight and integrated thought leadership that identify the trends and trend makers of global energy markets. Solutions cover the full energy and natural resources sector, from traditional fossil fuels to emerging clean tech ideas and supply chains, and are available via recurring reports, webinars, robust data sets, and personal engagements with experts. All right, welcome back to Energy Sense, an IHS market podcast devoted to covering topics that lie on the intersection of finance and energy markets. This is Hill Baden, and I'm here today as usual with Brian Doherty. Brian, it's Monday. How was your weekend? Uh, you know what? The weekend was pretty good. It was beautiful weather. So had uh, had a couple of dinners picnic style outside, which was a nice treat. This morning, I guess it makes it easier to get back to work because it's absolutely pouring outside. Uh, so happy Monday in that regard. I don't feel as guilty sitting outside staring out the window. Um, but yeah, I don't have any complaints. And yourself? Oh, it was all right. Uh, we, we went indoors to a restaurant for the first time. I was going to ask, were you able to eat indoors in a restaurant? or? So you do see some people eating indoors. Um, interestingly, I ran out to pick up takeout on, I think it was Friday or Saturday, and the restaurants were packed. So the street dining was packed, which was wonderful to see. It's so European style right now um, around New York City. I actually love it and a couple of places started to put up the space heaters so it's keeping everything really nice what was interesting is i walked by a restaurant and i heard people asking for a seat and they said well it's an hour wait for outside um but immediate seating inside because you're allowed i think it's 25 percent occupancy you're now allowed inside right and um the people said well wait so there, there was a long lineup of people waiting to sit outside and nobody was sitting inside. So again, it was beautiful weather. So I guess that has something to do with it. But um, apparently you can start eating inside. We have we have not done so. But to be honest, uh, we haven't been eating outside. We mostly pick up, pick up, uh, takeout because it's just easier. Um, well, that's been, yeah, we've done takeout that, until this, I guess, Friday or Saturday night. But we went at 5.30 in the afternoon trying to avoid yeah. any potential crowd and ate you. as fast yeah. as we've ever eaten. You're, you're out there with the senior citizens and, citizens and the people with children. Exactly. That typically is the 5.30 dining atmosphere. We were home in time to watch our stories and be in bed by 8 o'clock. All right, so, so we're joined today by Zizhou Zhou, who leads Global Powers and Renewables here at IHS Market. And, and Zizhou, it's late in your evening in Beijing, so, so thanks so much for joining us. No problem. Thanks for hosting. Yeah, and, and how, was, how was your weekend? I guess you've heard that, that you know, we're still battling some of the, the restaurant challenges here in the, in the U.S. Um, and I, I think y'all are coming off a big holiday, uh, what, what, 10 days or holiday week or so? Yeah, it was a... Uh... Eight day holiday week. Uh, I I didn't go anywhere, and I'm glad I didn't because uh, you know the trains were packed, the planes were packed, and the tourist sites were absolutely packed. People are climbing mountains with you know basically the person before you right in your face, and they couldn't move. And everybody wished they had not gone to the tourist spots. Oh wow! So I just uh, I just hang out here in the city. Um, last weekend went to a park with a few friends with the dogs. And a nice little picnic before the the temperature starts to drop. So that was nice. Sounds like it was the smart move. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was. You know, people had not traveled for eight months, right? A lot of yeah. delayed holiday budget that they were supposed to spend earlier this year. Now they're <laughs> like, okay, we got all this money we have to spend on travel. <laughs> 
So everybody went and they realized that it wasn't something they're they probably should do. But a, a somewhat, it sounds like a feeling of normalcy, I guess, relative to, to to some of the other parts of the world. Yeah, it's it's basically things are normal now. I went on my first business trip uh, a month ago, um, and the clients are starting to see us face to face. They're asking for face to face meetings now. But you know, this thing is as weird. Just two days ago, another city, Qingdao. Everybody knows Qingdao beer. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the city in the eastern part. They had, uh, I think, yesterday six cases that were locally transmitted. So it's, you know, we thought it, it was going to be zero for a long time, but uh, you have flare-ups here and there. And, and now that city has essentially gone into lockdown and uh, the entire population has to get tested. Oh, good. So, wow. Well, you'll have an interesting perspective, I guess, be, because you're also in the process of re- relocating to, to the US here in the next few weeks, right? That's right. Um, and uh, it will be an interesting experience to see uh, how Washington, D.C. copes with it, you know, compared to Beijing. And uh, I'll see if my mentality or what I think is acceptable safe levels mm-hmm. uh, are accepted in Washington. So, yeah, I'm really interested to see how that how that goes for you, because obviously you've you're in a unique position that you've actually lived in a a region that does things traditionally very different than potentially how things are being done here. So I'm, I'm interested to hear uh, what your take is once you arrive in DC. Yeah, I, I don't want to be that person on the plane, you know, to uh, <laughs> to wear a hazmat suit, you know, a full suit and yeah. everything. I would get off the plane with the, the media crew running after me uh, right. and be on national news next thing you know, and, and some politicians might point to me as the worst example of, you know, <laughs> <laughs> things things to try to avoid yeah <laughs> unless they recognize your celebrity perhaps from this podcast and, and then maybe it's just you know further validation that that we finally you know made, made the big airwaves or something we are a launching pad for celebrities <laughs> hill aren't we i think at this point right we've we've awesome <laughs> we've reached a whole new level <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, so you know, Zizha, what, we wanted to, to speak with you today um, on a paper that, that you led uh, the, the research of, uh, I guess it was about a month ago, but this was on the back of the news from, I think it was September 22nd, uh, Chinese President Xi announced that China is going to achieve net carbon neutrality by 2060, so, so 40 years from now, um, and that the country's carbon emissions are going to peak by 2030, so, so 10 years from now. Um, and really, just to put this into perspective for, for all our listeners out there, I think China emitted what was 10 billion metric tons of carbon uh, last year, and that's more than twice as much as any other country in the world, the second largest uh, being the United States. Um, and, and one of the things I'll confess that as I was reading this, I was reading at uh, my son's soccer practice, and upon finishing, I texted Brian, uh, and I think I just said, wow, uh, in, in the text. Um, but it begins with your opening paragraph, if done right, it, this, this pledge would not just create a new energy system, but, but a new economy, which, which doesn't feel like exaggeration. That's right. It's, you know, I mean, just given the amount of carbon, as you mentioned, emitted, it's basically how the energy system has been set up. And it's, it's an energy system that's been set up really just over 20 years, really just the past 20 years. <laughs> that went along with the economic uh, development of the country. Um, so between 2000 and now, carbon emissions essentially quadrupled. 
Um, and so that's, that's where it all happened then. And most of that is coal usage. So if we essentially had to do away with, you know, what supported 20 years of uh, phenomenal economic growth um, within the next 40 years and the change the entire system that's provided energy for that growth, it is a transformative task that had to be completed. So in our view, you know, one of the things we've been saying is that uh, the past 40 years since the reform era started in 1978, really, um, that China went through a transformation that nobody would recognize um, if, you know, they were time traveling back 40 years. So maybe this is another sort of 40 year period that would be coming um, if they really get serious about this uh, net zero emissions target. But I think what's interesting is in your piece, you also highlight, so even though there's obviously been this this huge growth, that China still has a very low per capita energy usage. So when we think about it from that perspective, do we think that that is going to make this easier to possibly do? Or is it more challenging How, You know, as we, as we try to move towards this 2060, 2060 pledge, pardon me? How, yeah. how does that play in? It's, it's definitely much more challenging, right? If we think about per capita energy usage, the average Chinese person consumes 40% uh, less than the average German and 67% less than the average American, uh, which essentially means that energy consumption will continue to grow just as you know there are still households that are buying their first air conditioning unit. And then there are also house unit, ha households here in the city that are buying their third plasma TV, right? So these are all just energy consumption um, that will be added over the next 40 years. Um, now, if we compare China with some of the other countries that have announced net zero emissions like um, Germany or Canada, those are countries um, also within the EU. Uh, generally, if you look at energy consumption in those countries, they have either peaked or they have plateaued. So what you need to do is only just to displace existing energy supply with uh, non-fossil fuel sources, whereas China has to do that, plus meeting additional energy demand with also clean energy sources. So it, it does make it more challenging in many ways. So what's the reception? You know, we're all looking at this from, from the perspective of people who have been in the energy research and consulting business for, for many years. What's the perception, you know, from you know, folks in China, are, are people paying attention to this and concerned, excited, ignoring it? Um, it's it's a huge thing here in the energy industry. I think even for people, you know, veterans in the Chinese energy industry, uh, some of them were surprised uh, because they really didn't see this coming in many ways. I, I think it's not just an energy strategic move. I think there's also a strong geopolitical move here, coupled with many other developmental ideas for uh, China as a country. Um, if I look at the, in the energy industry here, you know, I've been speaking to some of the, our clients in the oil gas industry, in the power industry, they are a little skeptical about what can be done. And uh, they think it's, it's too ambitious. But that said, because President Xi announced it, most of these companies probably have to follow and show something uh, because uh, most of them are state-owned companies. And if, if the top leader has announced that this is a goal that we're marching towards, uh, really they have to show something or do something about it. So, you know, you may, you may not get to it, but 
over the next five years, 10 years, you need to, as an energy company, you do have to carry out something that shows that you're moving towards that direction. And how about the typical citizen? Are they skeptical as well? We haven't heard too many people from the, from, from the, the, the citizens. One thing that's, um, and that's very interesting to observe is really the climate debate. On the science front, there really isn't a whole lot of debate that whether or not it's textbooks, it's national TV, it's magazines, uh, it's pretty well accepted that um, the, uh, the climate change challenge uh, is really directly related to fossil fuel usage. And uh, on the science front, um, we don't hear a lot of debate. So people are generally saying that, you know, that's something we do have to clean up. They connect oftentimes the climate change challenge with that of the air pollution challenge that they've experienced over the past decade, which has improved over time. But they had to, you know, pay extra money in some cases. The government had to provide extra subsidy as they switch from coal to cleaner sources of energy uh, to clean up the air in cities like Beijing. So to a lot of citizens, they've already gone through the sort of a little bit of a environmental movement over the past decade. And they generally see this climate change um, policy as a continuation of that. Now, you know, I don't think it's really hit people's bottom line yet in terms of what the implications are for electricity prices, for uh, natural gas prices, etc. So I think there will be a period where people start to to balance that with economic uh, development. But one thing that, that China is doing <laughs> that's helped a little bit is that uh, residential energy prices are generally regulated at a fairly low level. And uh, they're cross-subsidized by industrial and commercial customers who actually pay a little more. Uh, and that way you don't get as much sort of uh, grassroots discontent on uh, energy prices being too high. So when we think about this, obviously there's a huge amount of investment that's going to have to happen and and retooling of the energy system, right? So I can expect that Beijing is going to issue some effective measures. You mentioned that there's been subsidies, for instance, in place and things like that to accelerate renewables development. But, you know, it's interesting when we think of Europe, there's been a lot of policy that's been put in place that's sort of driven their efforts on this energy transition. But then you look at something like the U.S., where there's some policy, but a lot of it is kind of being turned to from the financial sector or from individual companies themselves to sort of drive some of the, the shift that we're ha we have here. What do you think is going to happen in China? How How is all of this going to get financed? Is there a way for non-China investors to actually integrate themselves into this transition? Or do we think it's going to be very much um, a domestically driven initiative? It's. I think there, there are a couple <clears throat> layers to this. One is that um, we, we generally know that uh, Chinese banks um, don't lack money. So so they, they've generally financed um, all of these projects themselves. If, if I look at the past 20 years in terms of uh, new power projects, new oil and gas projects, refining projects, these were all financed domestically by Chinese banks. And it's really a result of uh, China having one of the sa highest savings rates in the world. Uh, Chinese Average Chinese person just saves a lot of money. Um, so they're, they're able to finance this. But on the other hand, um, there's a call from both the U.S. and many other countries for the Chinese economy to be more open, right? For foreign investors to be able to access the opportunities here more directly. And uh, that's certainly had already, you know, you see the past uh, 
four or five years had an effect on how go the government here sees the role of foreign investors. Uh, for example, foreign automakers could only build a joint venture uh, car factories here in China if they could find a local partner. That was the, the rule for the past essentially 20 years. Um, and it was probably during the fastest growth period of Chinese car sales. And uh, starting last year, they've said that foreign investors could, uh, if you're GM or you're Ford or, uh, or uh, Toyota, you can build your own car factory in China. So I think there will be more opening of the Chinese economy overall, especially in some of the uh, high tech areas where they probably would welcome new technologies uh, to compete together and that, that can uh, essentially drive down costs of new technologies and then, you know, provide the best solutions. And doesn't Tesla have a plant in, in Shanghai? Didn't they open one within the past year or two? Exactly. They opened one and they are offering cars at much lower prices than even some of the Chinese domestic EV manufacturers. So it's already, you know, changed the landscape a little bit. Which I think also came out, you know, right right around the same time as this paper was published and the announcement happened. Um, you know, D Dan Jurgen's book um, on the new map. You know, for you know, in terms of geopolitics, the, the full title is escaping me. The new map: Energy, Climate, and the Clash of Nations. You know, it's right. That that China was one of. I, and I haven't read the, the 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 full book. I've read some of the experts from the Wall Street Journal and elsewhere. But China was what one of the predicted big winners of this new map. Um, and this seems to you know, potentially further accelerate or at least give further credence to that idea. Yeah, I, I think this is one of the, the key, you know, I actually wrote an op-ed on, on, on how low carbon future might be inevitable for China. Because one of the things that's happening, we're already seeing, you know, the past few years, is that the government sees clean energy technologies as really of an industrial policy. They want it. Chinese companies and the country to be in the forefront of clean energy technologies, basically, you know, how future energy sector will look like. And so that's as much of a driver, driver as uh, climate change. Um, they want, you know, China to be EV leader, hydrogen leader. Um, China's already a leader in, in, uh, in solar panels and wind turbines, et cetera. So it's, it's as much of a technology play as a climate change play. And of those technologies, you mentioned solar, them already being a leader. So do we expect, uh, when we talk about, uh, you know, the transition to this 2060 goal, is it solar that comes out in the front, solar batteries? Where does nuclear play into this equation? How, how, do, you, how do you think that fuel mix really looks as, as we move into this progression? Are some clearly going to be bigger winners, we think, than others? Yeah, it's, that's a great question. You know, we're still working through that. I think many people in the Chinese energy system, you know, whether or not government or uh, companies, they're trying to work out which technology will come to the forefront as well. I think it might end up being what uh, President Obama used to say about the U.S. energy option, which is, uh, quote, all of the above, end quote. <laughs> and, uh, and so this this might be something that we you know, we're looking at over the next five years, they'll probably let different technologies all develop as long as they're carbon neutral and see which ones provide the most immediate benefits. From our perspective, we certainly see solar plus uh, energy storage as a very important 
uh, part of this equation. That's something that China can do domestically. They have all of the solar manufacturing capability and uh, they're developing battery technologies very quickly, uh, mainly as a result of the EV industry growing rapidly. So if you can scale up the EV industry, the battery side, you could potentially really change how the power system generates its electricity. Um, nuclear is a very interesting one. It's uh, carbon free. China is right now home to 40% of all of the nuclear plants under construction in the world. So they're doing a lot in the space. We, we actually visited a couple of companies uh, recently that are building nuclear plants here or uh, investing nuclear plants here. And they think this is uh, still an important play uh, for them. And it provides very good base load when you need to retire coal plants, uh, whereas you know uh, renewables still need to work through the battery technology learning curve. Hydro still has some potential here, but you know some people argue that the hydro resources might be reaching a certain limit that you know you can only build so much. So you know a lot of things are happening. We, we're still looking at more gas-fired power plants being built. So that story of gas bringing uh, less carbon intensive electricity and being the bridge fuel might still be true for some time. And on sort of, and I won't quote you on it necessarily, although this is recorded, so I guess we are technically <laughs> quoting. Um, <laughs> but just around that gas discussion. So as we know, China is very much a, a huge growth region for the global gas story at the moment. How long do you think that time frame that it could remain th this bridge fuel conversation, for instance? Are we talking that that seems pretty much set in stone, at least on the front 10 years of what the wheels have already been put in motion for? Or do we think that it's kind of the next 20 years, at least getting us through to 2040 before we start seeing that turn away from gas? Do we have any sort of opinion on the on the timing of that inflection where gas goes from being growth um, within the mix to sort of maybe one of decline? Um, yeah, I, you know, it, it, it's a little bit of hard one to predict how long gas will go for. Right now, they're, you know, only 5% of uh, the carbon emissions in this country. So it's it's sort of marginal to it and, and not a whole lot of attention has been paid to it. And even if you allow it to continue to grow, it, it might get to say 10% of uh, the energy mix uh, it, it's still not the biggest part. So in our view, it probably can grow for another 10, 20 years before you really have to address it, as long as you can get the, the consumption of coal and oil down significantly. Now, the, the gas story, I think, becomes more complicated when um, many companies are already looking at coming up with new technologies like hydrogen or other renewable gas. Um, mm -hmm. And that's already spilled into China. We have uh, we have a hydrogen forum here that's hosted by HS Market. And we're seeing a lot of interest from both Chinese companies and international companies. So if the hydrogen industry, uh, especially green hydrogen, that is uh, electrolysis from uh, renewables, if that can develop faster, and if uh, China can use its manufacturing powerhouse to really reduce the cost of electrolyzers, then it could shorten the, the bridge life of natural gas and, and you fill the natural gas system or the previous gaseous energy system 
with uh, what uh, we would call uh, either green hydrogen or other types of renewable gas. How about carbon uh, sequestration? I mean, that would seem to be a huge opportunity potentially for in investors, you know, inside or out. But, um, you know, if you're already the world's leading carbon emitter, just yeah. kind of managing those carbon emissions has huge opportunity to, to either flatline or decline as the per capita energy usage decreases. Yeah, that's a, it's a CCS is hugely important. Now, the, I think the challenge is just given the scale of the emissions here, right, 10 billion tons. Um, you obviously can't put CCS through all of those. Uh, so you really have to decline, you, you really have to see a decline in carbon emissions in a very meaningful way to a very minimal level. And then you can really sequester, um, capture and sequester the, the rest of it. We do see some geological potential for it here. I think capture technology can mature, but you really have to find the right sequestration or utilization uh, methodologies for it. So, for example, there just aren't that many depleted oil and gas fields in China, right? You, how much can you really store in um, in uh, these uh, caverns, or do you need to find new geological formation for it? And that's actually something that the upstream industry could play a very important part in. Um, we are already hearing about some of the international oil companies here uh, in China now looking into working with the Chinese national oil companies on some of these uh, sequestration initiatives. I think it's an interesting question. So, I mean, obviously we're seeing a lot of the IOCs shift focus towards renewables and um, to cleaner technologies. How much do you think that the Chinese national oil companies might be in pledge? Um, are are we going to see massive shifts within their portfolios, do you think, and, and where their focus is going to be? Is that something that we expect? Yeah, they're asking themselves the same questions, right? They see, you know, Shell and BP and Total uh, really coming out with very aggressive um, uh, clean energy strategies and energy transition uh, strategies. So they're asking themselves what they should be doing. Um, we actually here on the ground, we think they're, they're, they're sort of, you know, in between a rock and a hard place because they, uh, their main mandate from the national government, right, which is basically their owner, uh, mm -hmm. is to secure the country's energy supply. So oil and gas supply, and that's their probably utmost, uh, task in their whole existence. Um, to make sure that, you know, there's a uh, secure oil, secure gas supply, that they work with international companies to make sure that China will have good partnerships around um, the world in bringing the needed oil and gas. So that's sort of their, their main mission. Um, and uh, if oil and gas are no longer needed, say, 40 years from now, what do they do? Do they become like what Shell has said, a power company that develop renewable energy, probably not easy because there's a whole set of other national companies under the government that are power companies. And these power companies are tasked to do power projects. So they're, you know, these very uh, well-defined roles for the different state-owned companies in the country. So there's already many power companies that have developed the current Chinese power system. Uh, which is the largest in the world and is very secure, very reliable, and they're also leaders in renewable energy. 
So if you already have a group of companies that are really good at doing that, why would uh, why would we need the oil and gas companies to do that? So it's a it's a it's a little bit of a hard question, but I think there mm-hmm. are some places where they could find a position like you know what we just mentioned, the CCS. That's not something that the power companies know how to do. They could work right. on hydrogen gaseous fuels, right? So yeah. not necessarily becoming a power company, but there are certain other things they could do as part of their energy transition plan. Would they need a government-directed mandate to begin doing that? I, I hadn't really thought about this, but this, you know, you know, the, the bureaucracy involved with some of the national companies, to, does that really, really inhibit or potentially delay some of the ambition here? Yeah, I think it would be really difficult for them to fully go into the power and renewables business. Also, partly they just come. They cannot compete with the incumbents. You know, the the power generation business was liberalized about what is it now, 20 years ago. So, you know, in addition to the five big uh, state-owned power companies, there are probably hundreds of smaller power generation companies out there competing, and uh, it's really hard to see how a big company like uh, CMPC or Sinopec uh, could uh, really compete with those guys. So. I think they'll have to find some other niche area, uh, maybe like electric vehicle charging stations or, you know, renewable gas or CCS um, along those lines That's that they can claim still as part of their traditional oil and gas business. Um, but otherwise, you know, for them to get into the power business, um, there's just way too many obstacles, both in terms of competition as well as uh, administrative restrictions. I'm going to ask the, uh, well, I'm going to be honest. I hope in 2060 that I'm retired. So I'm not, I'm not necessarily having, um, and, and seeing whether or not everything we said here today on the podcast proved to be true. Let's hope. So let's try to think in the next, let's say the next five years, are there things that we could potentially be watching for that are, are more tangible than a 2060 type target that, that we can really expect to see in the next five years in China that really is the, the wheels in motion towards um, this ultimate goal. And that we that as, a, as an industry or as the financial community especially, that we should be really looking for signposts or um, things that you think are going to see the biggest amount of shift in the nearest amount of time. Right. So I think there's one obvious question that many people are asking, right? It's 40 years from now, is it even meaningful? And one thing I always remind our friends is that um, our industry is very capital intensive, partly because our assets have very long life, right? So a coal-fired power plant you build today could very still be running in 2060. And if you look at some of the existing coal plants, in the US, they're 50 years old. So what we do today will have an impact on you know, the 2060 goal. Um, I think the good news is that we're in, in the year 2020, and this is the essentially the very beginning or the tail end of 13th five-year plan. And then we have the 14th five-year plan starting next year in 2021. And uh, usually in March, there's a um, national legislative session called the National People's Congress. And that's when a lot of the highest level directives or uh, new legislative sort of initiatives would start to come out. Um, And usually there is an energy one. 
So we probably would look for some signposts um, after the March uh, sessions um, and then and see you know where they're headed. What we believe now is that the recent announcement by C will definitely change the direction of the 14th five-year plan towards much more aggressive climate and the energy transition plans. So probably even more scrutiny on new coal-fired power plant built, um, more scrutiny over anything that will uh, increase uh, the transportation sector's energy, uh, the carbon emissions, because coal burn and transport sector are the, the two biggest emitting sectors. So then, on the other hand, you, you could probably see acceleration of uh, the push for new uh, technologies, including renewables, as well as any new mode of transportation or what we call, you know, new mobility, right? It could be, it could be anything that doesn't emit carbon. You know, people always just think about EVs, but hey, 20 years ago, uh, we have a whole bunch of bicycles in the streets here, right? That's carbon free too. So are there ways where you can connect the existing public transport system with bicycles and really reduce the need for even personal vehicles? So I think next year, you know, in March, we'll probably see some of these high level signposts coming out and then they're going to trickle down to different companies, different sectors, and then everybody will be making their own plans uh, for the next five years. And this will definitely be a good thing to watch as a direction on how much more aggressive they're going to push energy transition. Well, I think this is, uh, you know, w whether it's e each piece that kind of comes out in this over the next, you know, 5, 10, 15 years, it's just going to be fascinating to watch. And I understand how some can be skeptical, but, but uh, you know, China is not short on ambition historically and, and you know, has a pretty reliable track record of, of meeting a lot of that ambition. So, so this is really, in a sense, fantastic to see both from a curiosity perspective and, and from a, uh, you know, climate protection perspective. Um, and, and, and the most importantly, as, as soon as the announcement came out, I had a client from BP sending a note and just saying that, uh, are all the researchers busy writing yet? Um, <laughs> so I said, yes, we're already getting a report out. And uh, two days later, we had this report out. So they said it was very timely. So certainly, I think for all research consulting companies, uh, we'll have to do a lot more to really, you know, try to see how this will evolve. And uh, many in the industry here really look for us, uh, for our advice as well on how they should act in this new age. Yeah, and I think I'll go out on a limb here and say that we'll probably have you back in March uh, on the back of uh, the meeting that you just uh, spoke about because we'll be very interested to stay on top of uh, exactly how things are progressing progressing uh, with, with respect to this pledge because it, it's clearly going to be the space to watch, not just obviously domestically, but the whole world has their eyes on it, I think. In a more friendly time zone for me too. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and we'll, we'll also get to hear all about the uh, about the transition for you into DC and, and how that's gone and what you think. Absolutely. Maybe we can all do it in the same office at the same time. That's right. Those, those are goals, Hill, someday. <laughs> that's part of our 40 year pledge as well. Yeah is to get back into the office and, and have some meetings in person. These are these are things I dream about at this point. <laughs> All right, well, Zuzo, thank you. Uh, Brian, thank you. And uh, we, we will do this again uh, soon and, and all from the same time zone. Um, okay, that was thanks. fun. Thank you for doing yeah, this. Yeah, no, that was really good. Really appreciate it.
To read additional insights from our team of experts, visit our blog at www.ihsmarket.com slash energy blog. You can also find our experts on social media by searching for IHS Market Energy on either Twitter or LinkedIn. Have a topic idea or want to send us feedback? Email our podcast team at energysense at ihsmarket.com. This podcast contains information and insights copyrighted by IHS Market. To learn more about IHS Market Energy solutions, visit ihsmarket.com energy. That's ihsmarkit.com forward slash energy.